Amen. Well, thank you, James. James just prayed my sermon, so about five minutes I think we'll be done. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That was a great prayer. In a short 90 minutes will be completed. No. Um, it's so good to be with you this morning. We are going to be talking about our tongue, our words. We've been in the book of Romans, um, but uh, with our Latvia mission team, which includes our preaching pastor, Brian Sloan, uh, they're serving right now. We have the opportunity uh, this Sunday to hit pause on Romans and to consider something. And uh, the normal diet uh, here at the fields at our church in terms of our preaching is we work through wor- books of the Bible, different passages like um, like a, a book like Romans, as we've been doing. And we take those passages, and uh, we do what's called exposition, or at least aim to do that, where whatever the point of that passage is to that original audience, we want to make that the point of our sermons as well. We want to understand what Christ is speaking to His church today through His Word. Um, but this morning, I'm preaching topically for us on, on, uh, on our words. And, you know, if, if exposition is a regular diet, I don't know if this is like dessert or like salad. You'll have to decide at the end. I think this might be more like salad. Can, can y'all, y'all relate to this where you have normal nights of the week, but every once in a while you have a night where, okay, we got to do leftovers, or, okay, we've eaten out a lot, so now we need to cut back. We need to just have a salad night, or we need to have a meatless Monday. We need to I don't know, we take it easy. And, and sometimes, you know, it's good. Uh, I know a certain family sitting on a front row that uh, on uh, certain Sunday nights for members meeting, usually smoothie night is the case, right? Smoothies for dinner, so that's pretty awesome. Um, my point is that this isn't the regular diet of our preaching, but I hope that by looking at words and what the Scripture has to say about our words will help us this morning as we consider how to uh, understand this gift, and yet also this great responsibility that God has given us in our tongues. Um, and I want to open up with a little bit of an illustration. If you know me at all, you won't be surprised about this, that this week I was really excited to see uh, those web telescope pictures. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody seen that? Yes, James got excited. One other nerd here. Anybody else seen? Any idea? Okay, so all the nerds like me, yes. Um, all, all of you much more level-headed uh, uh, normal people in the room. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, there's this NASA telescope, and long story short, um, it just has amazing pictures looking into uh, God's universe around us, looking at stars and galaxies with such great detail like we've never seen before. Um, it is a very, very expensive project. It's like $10 billion to, to do something like that. To look at the night sky, to look at these stars and galaxies, takes a lot of work and a lot of money. And if you know the history of NASA, they haven't always done it right. In fact, there's this one story by way of illustration I, I just want to let you know about. A little over 20 years ago, there was uh, a spacecraft sent by NASA to study Mars, and uh, Jonathan's nodding. He knows what I'm talking about. The, the Mars Climate Orbiter. Um, this was, in, in today's money, not $10 billion. It was much cheaper. It was like half a billion dollars, which would still take most of us working together like 2,000 years, our, our annual salaries, to come up with the money. But anyways, besides the point, very expensive spacecraft being sent by NASA to go study Mars. But all of that money and all of that effort and all of those years of hard work went to nothing in a moment. What caused that? What was the error? 
Well, it was really just a matter of words. It was a matter of whether the numbers that were sent were associated with the metric system or with our U.S. English system. And because the words accompanying those numbers weren't sent with the clarification to the right team, uh, all it did was angle that spacecraft by, you know, several miles, and it bounced off the atmosphere of Mars and was destroyed and lost. It's crazy, right? And I just, I just opened that, that illustration for us because the reality is we don't need a story like that for you to know the power of words. Yeah, it hasn't cost, you know, $500 million in today's money, um, something you've said, I doubt, anyways. But how many words have been spoken in your childhood by someone you trusted, by someone you care about that still stick with you today? Something hurtful, something dismissive that has uh, done some destroying work on your heart. How many words have you, after some conversation, maybe at a small group or hanging out with somebody and you're driving home or you're laying in bed at night and you're thinking about what you said and, and you have that, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, you realize, whoa, I didn't hear that the way, I, the way I said that, the way that came across. I need to go apologize. Words have power. And to understand the power of our words, we need to look at the story of Scripture. We need to zoom in on these couple passages that James read for us. And then we need to take time and application to sit on what the Bible tells us about our words and understand how, if at all, we can use words to glorify God and to actually speak life, um, because that's why words were created in the first place. If you think with me through the storyline of Scripture, all the way back in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. How did He do it? He spoke, right? And there's, there's no accident here. And in fact, everything God made in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we see that it has to do with Him speaking it has to do with him not just announcing something that he's doing, but we understand that in a way the, the, the word of his power, the, the, the way in which God announces something, it causes it to be. It's something that none of us can claim at all. This is something only God can do, and he did it when he made the universe. That's how the Bible describes uh, creation. And it also describes that when God made man and woman, God made us in his image, uh, we have from God the ability to speak in such a way above all other animals and all other things of creation. We can understand animals can com communicate in, in, in certain ways instinctively to one another. Um, there's even different ways that uh, we hear sounds from speaking of space um, in different places throughout the galaxy and the universe. Um, but there's nothing, nothing we've heard in all of creation and all the cosmos that is like the human tongue, to be able to communicate ideas, to be able to speak about eternal, spiritual, philosophical, political, um, complex, intricate things in our culture. God gave us that ability in the creation of our tongues it should not surprise us then, if we're focusing on the Word, that when God made Adam and Eve, He used words to direct them in how they should live. He said that you will have dominion over creation, and He placed them, Adam and Eve, into a garden, and He said, I've given you every fruit-bearing tree for your good to enjoy. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
That was their one directive um, in, in the words that God was speaking to them, the words of life that would lead them to live abundantly in God's creation. But Satan, the deceiver, uh, the fallen one, came to tempt Adam and Eve. And what weapon do you think he chose? What, what he, as he was thinking through his arsenal of things to insert sin, to try to bring through temptation a, a brokenness and a death into the world that had never been there before, what weapon did he use? Words. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came and spoke to Eve. He used words to talk about God's Word and twist their understanding of it. And as a result of that conversation between Eve and the serpent and Adam being there and not opening his mouth and speaking God's truth, they fell into sin. They disobeyed God. They ate of that tree that they should not have eaten, and sin and brokenness entered the world. But God was not done speaking. God responded by speaking, yes, cursing and consequence, but in the cursing and consequence of sin, God inserted a promise that an offspring was coming to crush the head of the deceiver and to destroy the power of sin and death. And the whole Old Testament, you can see, is really, when we're thinking about words, a story of God continuing to announce the Messiah's coming. There, there's a servant who's coming to save his people. There, there's a perfect lamb who's going to come and, and lay his life down for the sheep. Uh, this is Jesus, who we see promised throughout the Old Testament, so that when we arrive in the New Testament, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, it should also not surprise us the way that John 1.1 describes who Jesus is. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is incredible. We'll unpack this some more uh, uh, later on here. But at verse 14, that same chapter um, to dig into this further, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We've seen God's glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God made good on His promise, and He did so through a living Word. Jesus, the living Word, perfectly taught about God's kingdom. Uh, God's words were in Jesus. That was definitely true. But because God's Word also was Jesus, Jesus not only spoke the truth, he lived out the truth. He was perfectly righteous. And he did perfectly what God sent him to do, which was what? Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the grave three days later so that we could not just hear truth and let it bounce off our skulls, not just encounter words in our daily lives and trade them in and out, going in one ear and out the other, struggling in sin as all humankind has with knowing the truth and being able to speak the truth to one another. No, Jesus died so that we would be made new. This living word laid down his life so that we would, through faith and repentance of sin, be able to be made alive in him. That's what Jesus came to do. It should then come as no surprise that when Jesus uh, was going to ascend into heaven— he gave those who followed him a particular directive. He told them to do something in response. And primarily, what did he tell them to do? Well, I love the way that uh, Mark 15, 16, or, sorry, Mark 16, 15 says it very simply. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, right? God is still speaking, 
except now through his Holy Spirit, through those who have repented of their sins and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has sent them into the world, us who believe in Christ into the world, to speak his word. And finally, when we get to Revelation, it's amazing to think about the weapon that Satan feebly tried to use in the garden to destroy humanity and to tear down the glory of God. Revelation says that when Jesus comes, he will have one weapon, the sword of his mouth. And with that sword, he will gather his beloved, he will gather the church, and he will bring justice on the wicked. When Jesus returns, the living word who died and rose again and now lives forevermore will make for himself a people in a place where for all time we will sing and praise and glorify and speak words that glorify God forever. See, the Bible is a story about words, arguably. This is so important for us to understand. So what are we going to do this morning? Like I said, we're going to walk through these two passages very briefly. And I really want to spend some good time at the end sitting in several application points because I I want us to understand, okay, in light of what God has done throughout the story of Scripture, how does that actually then connect to how you and I speak on a day-to-day basis? Again, none of us, I don't think, are going to be put in a situation anytime soon where some mathematical or translational error of some kind will result in, you know, several million dollars being lost. No. But we know that words cause great destruction, so we need to, to zoom in on these passages and try to understand. And the first one that James read for us so well was Luke 6, 43 to 45. These are just three verses taken from Jesus' teachings in the gospel, specifically in a sermon on a large plain in front of this great crowd of people. But in chapter 6, in verse 20, it seems clear Jesus is teaching his disciples. And, and when you look at the whole chapter, it's clear that Jesus is teaching about how to live in a, in a particular way. Jesus is teaching about living in a particular kingdom, that is God's kingdom, and it's very upside down from what we think. Not upside down because God's upside down, but really because, again, going back to the garden, sin and brokenness has flipped us upside down from God's character and who he is, right? So Jesus is teaching about this, and he ends his sermon. If, if you've got Luke 6 open, just glance at the last heading of the chapter above verse 46. What does it say? Something like, build your house on the rock. You see that? See, this is, the, this is kind of the main point where Jesus lands here. When he gets to that, that ending of his sermon, he's trying to say that those who just hear his words externally and Uh, don't do them are like someone who built a house on the sand. And that house is not going to stand, right? But those who hear his words, take them in, and and actually do them, they are like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds come, the storms come, that house will stand, right? So these three verses uh, in in Luke 6, Luke 6, 43 to 45, they're speaking uh, right before this closing main point. Jesus is trying to show his disciples of the power of empty words and where they actually come from. And he uses a couple different pictures for us. The first is of a tree, right? Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. This is Sesame Street, y'all. Bad tree, bad fruit, good tree, good fruit. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. 
Uh, it's, it's pretty simple, right? But I, I think we, we <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I'm reading a verse like that, I even start to translate it in my own understanding of what that means. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, 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 Jesus, I, I got you. So you're saying, like, we're all like apple trees, and, you know, they're like some bad apples, like health, unhealthy apple trees. And so it's like, you're wanting us to be healthier apple trees so that we'll have good fruit and not bad fruit, right? That's not how Jesus explains it. Verse 44, check it out. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. He isn't just talking about unhealthy trees or healthy trees. Jesus did not come to teach words that would make unhealthy trees more healthy. He came to teach words that pointed to a truth that trees that don't bear fruit need to be transformed into trees that will bear fruit. That's the gospel. This is incredible for us to understand. And, and, and Jesus continues on this theme when he hits that second picture for us in verse 45, the first part. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Again, we're still Sesame Street, y'all. This is real simple. Bad treasure results in bad treasure. Good treasure, good treasure. What it's stored in is really just what it's stored in. And if we dig in and pull out from that box bad treasure, that's a bad treasure box. If we reach into the box and we're pulling out good treasure, that's a good treasure box. I, I remember several years ago um, when uh, my, my great-grandmother moved, we, we were going through a lot of her things because her husband was a, a, a jeweler. I always have a hard time saying that word, jeweler, right? Um, but it's so neat to be able to see uh, like the watches he worked on and the rings and different different things like that. So you knew when you got to a box that was labeled, um, wow, I forgot his name, Kenneth. When you got to to a box that was labeled with his name, you knew, oh, okay, this is going to be some good stuff in here. But when you got to that like unlabeled box that had like chew holes on the side of it, and it was like pushed back in a corner, it was like, uh, I don't know what's going to be in there. And I remember, I remember being there helping out as a kid, and I opened up that box, and it was full of books, and I opened the first book, and there were maggots everywhere. It was so gross. It was awful. Um, I should have looked at the outside of the box. Jesus is being pretty simple here. That, that's the idea, um, that, that, that our words point to the storage unit, so to speak, right? And our words are, are not so clever like we think. They're really not. We, we think that through lying and performing and pretending and through hiding that, that we can stay back in some sort of fortress and our words are sort of like a buffer point, some wall out on, on the far edge. And we, it may be messed up in here, but if we send a scroll to some messenger to announce at the far point, then we'll be seen as good. God sees straight through that. God who made our hearts and our tongues sees us clearly for who we are. That's why Jesus ends this passage by saying something really striking. The surprise is not good, good fruit from good trees or good treasure from good treasure boxes. The surprise is what the treasure is. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The first truth I want us to understand this morning is that our words reveal the condition of our hearts. It's a simple truth. But it's a striking truth when we stop and think about the way we might consider our words on the surface level. The way we might consider our words as, again, a sort of buffer point or something we're trying to, well, I want to speak really well so that I'll feel better on the inside or be seen of as right. I'll, I'll speak really well on the outside so that I'll feel better about 
the thoughts I have on the inside. And Jesus does not want us to approach our words in that way at all. That's, that's a futile approach to understanding our tongues in the way that God has made us. We should understand that when, when Jesus says heart, right, as being that source point, in the Bible, the heart is not simply just the emotional engine of ourselves. Um, in fact, actually, if you go through Scripture, what's really interesting, most of the time emotions are coming from the gut. But in, in Scripture, the heart is always used to describe, like, the sum total of the core, causal, motivational, convictional center of who we are as people. Just to give you some examples, um, the Bible describe, uh, describes the heart as yes feeling, yes desiring, but also thinking. Your heart thinks, according to the Bible. Your heart says, according to the Bible. It has a conscience. It judges, and many, many more things. So when Jesus is looking at our hearts, he's looking at the core of who we are. And the Bible teaches us that because of the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, all human hearts in their own strength and their own flesh have fallen. There's not a human heart that by its own strength, apart from the God who made it, can create a goodness that will result in good words, much less good actions, much less a good life. Ezekiel 36, 26 gives us our hope from God where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How does that happen? Well, Bible's clear. We've walked through it in Romans as well. It comes through faith in Christ. Because notice, notice this, when God sought to fix the word problem in the world, right? Satan brought a word problem that's a much bigger problem, but on one sense, it's a word problem. It's an idea that, that, that there were bad, sinful, uh, uh, bringing temptation, words that were spoken by Satan that, that came from uh, the flesh that uh, were embraced in temptation and that led to sin, right? So one sen- in one sense, you might think, well, okay, God just needs to come down and argue, right? God, uh, God needs to sit Satan down. He needs to sit all of us down. And if you'll just argue out the truth, then that'll fix it. But God knows better. He knows who we are. He knows what sin has done to who we are in the flesh, in the core of our hearts and who we are. That's why he sent Christ who didn't come down as an argument, but who came down as a living word. God's word in a beating heart that rather than ultimately give his life to prove himself right and put himself on top of everyone else, came down to be a servant and give his life and die on the cross for us. So that's our hope. If we're going to talk about our words at all this morning, we need to look at our hearts first. And if you're sitting in this place, and before I even really unpack further what, what we need to understand about our own words, you're considering your heart, and you realize, oh, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't call that good treasure. I wouldn't call that good fruit. The words I say, and certainly the thoughts of my heart, intentions of my heart. And you're here, and you've heard a lot about Jesus. You've heard a lot about, even from the church, the way you should talk, 
the things you should say, the things you shouldn't say, please hear me say and hear Jesus clearly teach, God is after your heart, and he's after your heart through faith. If you understand what Christ has done for you, repent even this morning, even now. Turn and follow Jesus, the living word who is able to save you. Only he can save you. And Christian, let's stop and think here. If that's the case, if, if, uh, if our words reveal the condition of our hearts, do you realize that God's Holy Spirit is at work to reveal his work in your heart through your words? Can I ask that again? Do, do you realize that God's Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that made you a new heart and a new person, a new creation, as Paul says, that God is at work to reveal his work in your heart through your words. This is what we're going to spend the rest of our time considering by way of James 3 and then several application points, okay? So, we've done Luke 6. Flip over to James 3 for a bit. James read it so well for us. We got an idea of this passage um, that's so clearly about our words. He's talking about the tongue, but he's really talking about our words. James is doing something really similar to what Jesus did in Luke 6 when Jesus talked about the heart, okay? We're going to graduate a little bit. Sesame Street, Sesame Street, we were good on that. We're going to go to like high school English, okay? Metonymy. I, yeah, sorry, Nicole. We're going to go to high school English. Metonymy. Any of you remember what that is? M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. Metonymy is a f- really fancy word for a figure of speech that takes like the small part of something and it points to a larger reality, okay? So if I say something like, hey, everybody, lend me your ears. Please do not pass your dismembered ears up forward to the front. That would be gross and not at all what I mean. I also don't just mean, and parents, when you say, hey, kids, give me your ears, give me your ears, you're not just saying, hey, just, just recognize what I'm saying. Just let it pass through your brain. No, what are you saying? Give me your attention. Focus your mind on what I'm saying. Ready your heart to receive that which is coming out of my mouth so that it won't be said in vain, right? Well, James is doing the same thing that Jesus did when he said heart, and he was looking at the whole person. James is looking at the tongue, this small, small part of the body, and he's looking at all of our speech from when my son Luke is barely now starting to say things like mama and dada, and he doesn't even know what that means, to the very, very ends of our lives when our words fail on our lips. This is what's captured in this idea of the tongue that James is talking about in James chapter 3. And in verse 2, I want us to see he's making a a shocking claim. Let me read verse 2 after. He gives an opening warning for uh, uh, us not to presume that many of us should be teachers. Uh, And again, that's pointing to the importance of our words. He he starts to dive into the idea of the importance of the tongue in verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Really, James? I don't know. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man? Able to bridle his entire body? If you're like the philosopher or like the, the kind of thinking of the outside, you're, you're thinking right now, you're like, okay, well, hold on. What about a person that he's never able to speak and he's a murderer and he goes and does this? Look, that's not what James is saying. What is James saying here? I don't, I don't think he's being that hyperbolic. I don't think he's being that exaggerating. I think what James is saying 
is that our words are so important in the connection from our hearts to our lives that if any point of that connection is not strong, has cracks in it, uh, isn't fully sincere, isn't fully clear in how it communicates, then we cannot presume to have a righteous life. And if we can't presume to have a righteous life, what does that mean about our hearts? The subtext, I would say, for verse 2 here is that, yeah, there, there is no man who has never stumbled in what he says. There is no perfect man except Jesus, the living word in the human heart of Christ. That, that's an amazing truth for us as we then understand what this whole passage is saying in warning about our tongues. It's saying three things. It uses a, a pair of, of metaphors, a pair of pictures for each of the three things, right? The first thing he's saying is that our tongue is really powerful. It's, it's just like a, a, a bit in the mouth of a horse, a bridle. You can control that large animal. Well, the tongue's the same way. In fact, actually, let me go even bigger. James is saying, I'm going to go to a rudder, little piece of wood on a large ship, able to direct the path of that large boat. Our tongues are very powerful. This is good for us to think about in terms of our lives, in terms of how we measure our words versus certain actions, or how we spend our time in certain ways. James is trying to help us zoom in on the power that our tongue has, really above a lot of other things that we could do. One, the power of our tongue. Two, the danger in our tongue. He uses two more word pictures for us. You can see them beginning in the second half of verse 5. There's a forest fire that's, that, that's caused by a little spark. You want to talk about small things that cause great financial and physical and spiritual even loss in the world. You think about the, some of the large forest fires that have happened over even recently and over uh, many decades caused by all kinds of just little things, right? James is saying, hey, your tongue is dangerous. It's not just powerful to be able to do good, but now he's zooming in on the human heart. He's saying, guys, your tongue is really, really dangerous. And the second picture he uses in, in, in the danger section, he's talking about untamed creatures. Uh, he's saying we can tame all these different creatures, but your tongue is untamable. What is he saying there? Well, all creatures, remember how we were made, right? There's dominion, there's a level of communication, of understanding. Well, there's an instinct to creatures. The more we learn in biology, there's so much written into the DNA of, of life um, that, that leads to certain instincts. And we can use that to our advantage. We can, we can train those animals based on their instincts. We do not understand the instincts of the human heart and the way it's expressed in the tongue. We don't. We don't know how to control it. That's why there's so many careless words. That's why there's so many careless things that come out of our mouths so often. We do not understand the danger of our tongue, and that leads to the third point that James is making for us. Because it's powerful and because it's dangerous, we fall into the hypocrisy of our tongue, the, the du duplicitousness of blessing God and cursing those made in his image with the same instrument. And the second half of verse 10, he, he gives us a, a strong warning. He says, these things ought not to be so. Why, why does he say that? Again, God did not make us for this. If you're a Christian, you've been made a new creation. You've been given a new heart. Your tongue, your words your speech that flow from the thoughts of your heart 
and your attitude and tone and reflection, all those things should look vastly different from the rest of the world. Vastly different from before you were a Christian. Because you're a new creation. This shouldn't be so. And and he gives the same pictures, very, very similar at least, to what Jesus says. He talks about a spring. It can't produce fresh water and salt water. Again, we're going back to uh, simple images here. And he uses, again, very similar to what Jesus said in verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. Christian, we, we need to examine ourselves sincerely. We, we need to understand the second point here from James 3. Our words have power to destroy or speak life and ultimately to prove whether we have any life at all, whether our hearts are really alive or not. Okay, maybe we're in the salad section, this, but maybe not dessert part of the sermon. This is important. This is crucial for us to understand as Christians. And so what I want to do with our remaining time here, and I really, in prayer and study, and just trying to understand our words throughout Scripture, um, came up with <laughs> quite a long list of things that God has to say about our, our words, about our tongue. I tried to whittle it down, and at our Tuesday, uh, other preachers and brothers uh, preparing to preach, we looked at the text together, and they, it was odd. They, they said they would pray for me to whittle it down, and then they added a bunch to the list. So, but um, I've got 15, and I know I roll. I know. But hear me out. Here's my preface. One, I'm going to work quickly through them. Two, my goal is not that you're going to understand and fully encapsulate and wrestle with every single one of them. So three, listen for two or three that you realize, wow, I haven't thought about that when it comes to my words. Listen for two or three that you're like, wow, I, I, when I talk, it doesn't sound like that at all. Well, let's just sit in these and let these points from Scripture, Lord willing, Help us to, through analyzing our words, look to our hearts. You ready? One, what do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray for God to guard our tongue. Uh, Preston opened our time together this morning so well with Psalm 19:14, which ends with the verse that we said together, right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Who better to go to, to help with the words of our mouth than the one who by his word made our mouths. We need to pray and ask God for his help. Ask God, are you glorified by my words? Ask God to help examine your heart and examine your tongue. If it's a restless evil, as James talks about it in chapter 3, we need to do this constantly. Number two, we need to repent Repent often of sinful words. Isaiah 6, 5. In fact, I encourage you, just read Isaiah chapter 5 and chapter 6, 1 through uh, 9, I think I'm thinking of. Um, It's so interesting that the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking all these different woes, W-O-E, to all the people for their sin. And in the Bible, when there's a set of six things, you're looking for a seventh. You're looking for a climactic, okay, what's the, what's the main thing? Well, he speaks six woes, and then chapter six hits, and you're watching for that seventh woe. And, and here's what he says in Isaiah 6, verse 5. 
Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Church, we need to repent often of our sinful words. We need to look at ourselves before others and examine our hearts and examine our words in prayer and then repent and turn to Christ. Number three, talk less, listen more. Sounds practical? It is. It's also biblical. James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Be known for listening, not interrupting, not putting your words over others. Think of Christ and how he as the living word used his words. Number four, be filled with God's word. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love this verse because guess how Paul talks about us uh, having the word dwell in us? By singing. When we sing songs like, speak, O Lord. When we sing songs like, come thou fount. We sing things like, prone to wonder, Lord, I, I feel it. We're asking God, test our thoughts and our attitudes and the radiance of your purity. When we're singing those things, that's good. That's not just something that's happening with our mouths. That's doing heart work. If we're really digging into what God has given us through his word. That's what those songs are pointing to. Yeah, they sound great, but they're pointing to the reality of who God is from his word. We need to be filled with God's word. Deuteronomy 6, um, Israel is taught that they should have God's word on their hearts constantly when they sit, when they rise uh, for their children. It should be filling our lives. And the last thing I'll say on this point briefly is just, do you realize how many words you say in a day? I don't know, just think of a number real quick. When I was looking up, like the least talkative person, we're maybe at like 7,000, but the average is 10 to 20,000 words a day from this. I'm probably like a 25. <laughs> it goes back to talking less, right? But if that's the case, if you're hearing these words, you're hearing the great words of these songs and prayers and the time together on a Sunday morning, if those are the only words in your week in which you encounter God's word, that's going to be at most like 5%. And I don't know about you, but when my doctor prescribes me a pill when I'm sick, I don't want to take that pill and cut it in half 10 times and take what's left over and hope that I'll get better. We need to be filled with God's word. Number five, don't fill your mind with worldly words. Remove, as it were, worldly words from our lives. Those that are speaking against God's word, those that are influencing our minds and our vocabulary and the way that we say things such that we don't sound like God sounds. We don't sound like Jesus sounds. We don't sound like the Bible sounds. We sound like our favorite person we follow on Twitter. We sound like our favorite set of jokes on a particular show. We sound like our favorite kind of music. We sound like any other. And don't get me wrong, all those things can be used well and good for God's glory. But if God's word is not the foremost thing mapping our voc vocabulary, uh, we as Christians have some work to do there. Number six, be honest with one another. A sincere and, and true honesty Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be honest. Don't lie. Just consider that. In your, I think all of us are, are going to wrestle with that on a, in a different way. 
that, that we are tempted to lie or to conceal the truth or to avoid the truth or to not speak the truth when needed to a neighbor and to a, a fellow church member, brother and sister in Christ lovingly, or to not speak the truth publicly in a situation where God's word or the truth is being um, derided and thrown down. We need to understand what it looks like to be truly honest. Number seven, purify your tongue. Remove all profanity and obscenity. And I would just helpfully, I would underline the word remove, and then I would underline the word all, and then the word profanity, and then the word obscenity. Remove all profanity and obscenity. This is just clear in Scripture. Church members, I many of these things are not things that we see on a Sunday morning. They're not things I'm addressing. Our our words, I'm so encouraged by your words so often, but I know the thoughts of my own heart. I know the things that are said in frustration. I know the things that are said around that group of friends that has nothing to do with this group of friends, and so you can keep everyone sort of siloed away in different places. God did not make our tongues to profane his name or holy things or speak lightly of that which he has created or to speak obscenely or crassly or in harsh joking about things which are private and hidden and even holy. Remove all profanity and obscenity. And in the gray area, let's just let James 3 be our guide that we should understand, okay, our tongue— in the flesh is a restless evil, so we need to bridle it. Let's be known by that. Number eight, speak the truth in love to build others up. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I'll just put it this way. We should never speak an unloving truth. I know the world's going to have its own definition of what that looks like. That's different from Scripture. But Christ clearly taught us we should never speak and unloving truth. We should encourage with the truth, educate with the truth, equip with the truth, exhort with the truth. Number nine, be known for your gratitude, not your complaining. I almost cut this one because I feel like we're all good, but I thought, no, I'm just kidding. I, I'm looking at my own heart this week, and I'm looking through these verses, and I I'm, I'm studying, and I read a verse like Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in, in the context of addressing one another in that way. Giving thanks always, Ephesians 5.20. And I, I read things like Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Agreed. Good to go. And then five minutes later, the Amazon notification comes on my phone that says, eh, your package is going to be a day late. Ten minutes later, something, you know, technology, my iPad, something breaks, or I have to update it, or something goes wrong, and suddenly all thankfulness is out the window, right? Oh, Christian, let's look at our hearts honestly in these. Be known for your gratitude, and most of all, for gratitude for salvation in Christ, not for our complaining. Number 10, and, and the last several of these will, will point to, um, to, to the truth of what number 10 speaks. Proclaim the gospel boldly. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Paul said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom. And what comes next is, it should be pretty weighty. Like, okay, this is what you are called to do. Preach the word. Proclaim the, proclaim the gospel. Understand who Jesus is. 
understand who you are in your own flesh, in your sin, and what Christ came to do for you as a living word to die for your sins and to rise again from the grave so that all who repent and believe in him would have eternal life. Let's proclaim that truth boldly. Number 11, when we do that and when we speak with one another, speak out of sincere compassion. Speak out of sincere compassion. Matthew eleven twenty nine is a great, great verse for us to understand this by. When Jesus talks about his own heart, as the book by Dane Ortland so well uh, talks about and examines, we understand that the heart of Jesus is gentle and lowly. It is informed by a deep compassion that you nor I in our own strength cannot acquire. We need God's help to see the world and one another through the compassionate heart of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. Sincere compassion. Number 12, dignify others with honor and respect. They've been made in the image of God. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter how well you think they talk. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their income level. It doesn't matter their job. It doesn't matter their secondary opinion on some certain thing that you're really passionate about. If they are a living, breathing human, if they are a person, they are made in the image of God. And God's Word tells us to dignify everyone with honor and respect. The verse there was 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Number 13, answer others with humility and grace. I love this next verse in Colossians 4.6. When we think about answering others with humility and grace, Paul says it this way, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Friends, if I could be honest, beginning with my own heart and considering our church culture and considering Christians. We do well to focus on understanding the truth of the gospel. We have to. It is, it is what has saved us. We need to know the gospel. Yes and amen. But I worry that we treat the gospel like an unseasoned piece of meat and not like the full five-course meal of God's loving grace and mercy and kindness that he has given us lovingly in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that Jesus lovingly served the gospel? Yes, boldly. Yes, uh, condemning sin. Yes, speaking against the Pharisees. Yes, standing up for the truth, but also being immensely patient with his followers, being immensely gracious towards those who made many mistake after mistake in their words and actions. Friends, our speech should be seasoned with the salt of God's grace and humility. 14, persuade others through well-informed reason. 1 Peter 3.15, we have the opportunity by God's grace to use our minds and our tongues for a great purpose. So why not use it to learn and share and understand and support the truths of the gospel with all that we get to know about it, first in God's word and the world around us. Persuade through well-informed reason. And lastly, 15, declare God's goodness and glory to all. Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. This is why we were created. When God first opened his mouth in Genesis 1, he spoke life 
our hearts as expressed through our tongues on our own speak death because we have dead hearts. But, but Christian, if Christ has made you alive, he's given you a new heart, then everything that pours forth from that tree, everything that's pulled out of that treasure box, let's find Christ in it. As we breathe in God's word, as we breathe in the good news of the gospel, as we breathe in all that God has given us in Christ, let's breathe out and speak the truth in love and use our words for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make these things clear to us, that which is unclear, that you would clarify that any of my words that are not tethered to your words that you would make uh, forgetful, that you would toss behind, and anything that is of your word that we would be able to consider this week. I pray, God, that the person in this room that is tempted to fall into a legalism, that's tempted to look at their words and to try to make those things better, would you dig into their hearts? Dig into our hearts, God. We need you to transform us. First in saving faith. That's that's the hope and the good news of the gospel, that, that, that we can, though we have hearts of stone, be transformed to be given hearts of flesh through faith in Christ. God, I pray for the kid that feels burdened in this room because how many times their parents get onto them by the way they speak. For the person who's been trying to say the right things on the outside but feels like they're just decaying on the inside over and over. God, I pray that you would bring the light and the truth of the gospel that Jesus has loved them and shown your love for us in this, that while they, while we were still sinners, he died on the cross and rose again. God, help us as Christians to watch our words and use them for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.